Now last week, I mentioned that there are several kind of root fundamental views of sex in our society today. I mentioned that they actually flow out of these preconceived ideas that we're not always conscious of. The views of sex in America today are not primarily logical, as if we mean by that. They are just natural, neutral, perfectly reasonable to anybody who gives them a second thought. They are ideas that are logical to us because of beliefs and opinions we have that produce those ideas. I mentioned that the two predominant kind of beliefs or philosophies in our culture that are supporting the views of sex today, one is called realism and one is called romanticism. And that these two basic ways of looking at our world have actually produced three views of sex. One is the realist perspective, that good sex is safe sex. That the sexual drive is biological. It's natural. So if it's safe, if you're responsible, if it's consenting adults, then it's okay. And that our culture needs to stop being so uptight. We need to stop piling guilt on people, repressing them, and just make sure they aren't irresponsible, exposing themselves to disease or unwanted pregnancies. Now, this approach to sex is, is a dominant approach. You see it. Um, clearly articulated in the common debates regarding sex education in public schools. That we need to demystify sex, we need to teach it from a biological perspective, and we need to empower people to be responsible in their sexual choices. Now that's only one of the voices in America today. There are at least two other primary players, and I use that in a delightfully sneaky kind of way. There are two other kind of primary players in the realm of sexual attitudes. And these other two are deeply rooted in something that occurred in the late 18th century called the counter-enlightenment. In the counter-enlightenment, late 18th century, early 19th century Europe, this idea, this intellectual movement began to sweep across Europe called romanticism. Now, it wasn't just uh, of, uh, something that people sat around talking about in intellectual ways. It, it took up its primary root in art. In the artistic movements of the late 18th century, early 19th century. So we see it in writers as diverse as Jane Austen and Edgar Allan Poe. These are romantic writers. Um, we see it in Victor Hugo, one of my favorite writers of all time. He was essentially a writer of the romantic philosophies. We see it in po poets like Coleridge and uh, Byron and the two Shelleys. We see it in paintings like Goya and Delacroix and composers like Schubert and Chopin and Litz and Wagner. And the, the list just goes on and on. Now the reason I'm saying all of this is that you need to say, you need to see that our culture has been awash in its artistic artifacts that have been programming us to think about reality in a particular way that leads us to what I'm about to say sounds so logical when it comes to sex. And when it comes to romanticism, the idea is that society is the source of evil. Think about Disney movies. So long as we've got animals in their un 
corrupted state, life is good. But in Disney, society comes in with machines and industry and perverts. That is romanticism. Human beings in their unspoiled original state were brimming with goodness and creativity. And our basic primal instincts are good and pure. So they need to be liberated, not repressed by cultural mores. This is romanticism. Now, when it comes to sex, this romanticism, this way about thinking about the world, typically goes in one of two directions. Now, remember, for the biological realist, sex is right if it is consensual and safe. In romanticism, sex is good and right if there is love. The the, the realist approaches sex from the perspective of eliminating the negative consequences. The realist will talk about safety, condoms, and venereal diseases. This is where, this is the focus of their attention. The romantics will talk about love and your identity. Romanticism would say, yes, indiscriminate casual sex is dehumanizing, but there is a real difference between two responsible people irresponsible people who are acting in a fit of passion, there's a difference between that and two mature adults who are acting in tender responsibility toward each other. See, the romantic would push against the casual sex culture. The romantic would say that there is nothing wrong with sex between two responsible people who are deeply in love. Marriage is irrelevant to this. Love is the issue. After all, what difference does it make to have a piece of legal paper filed at some courthouse? How does that have anything to do with my soul, with my essence, with my identity, with this deep relationship between me and this other person? Sex in the context of a loving relationship between two people who deeply care for one another is not only natural, it can deepen their relationship. It's right and good if it is sincere. And respectful and responsible. Sex is a special form of getting close. Preventing people from experiencing that is repressive. That's bad. That's trapping them into something that is holding them back. It's distorting them. The fundamental issue is love. This idea that sex is right or wrong based on the, the emotional, psychological conditions of the relationship. There's another way it plays out. And this other idea is that my sexual orientation, my sexual desires are a fundamental expression of my true self. This is the third way. This is the second move of romanticism. That when you hear someone arguing that rules about sex are bad, if they present prevent someone from expressing a sexual desire that is the essence of who they are, then you are causing someone to have an unfulfilled potential. Our sexuality is a fundamental aspect of our identity. That is romanticism. That your sexual desire, your sexual proclivity, your sexual orientation is your identity. Now, the biological realist says sex is good if it is consensual and safe. The romanticist says sex is good if there's love or if there's an authentic self-expression. But the Christian view rejects both of those, all three of those. 
The Christian view actually recognizes in each of them truth. Yes, it needs to be safe. Yes, there needs to be consent. Yes, it needs to be true to who you are. All of those things. But the Christian view, that's not the fundamental angle of entry. It's not the backdrop against which sex is determined right or wrong. See, the Christian view says there are truths in all of these positions, but there is one thing that is missing, and that thing is marriage. Sex needs to be safe, and it needs to be consensual, and it flourishes where there is love and and authentic self-expression, but sex is only right in marriage. Now, Christianity has a single, clear, simple view on sex. Faithfulness in marriage, no sex in any form, in any situation, Outside of marriage. All sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman, according to Christianity, is wrong, immoral, and wicked. Now, that's a very simple thing. Not that it's easy to believe and all that stuff, but it it, it doesn't take calculus. It's a very simple propositional statement. There are no exceptions. If it is two people who love each other and are committed to each other and are sincere and respectful and caring, but they are not married, it does not matter. If they're almost married, it doesn't matter. If they promise to get married tomorrow and everything's set up for the wedding, it still does not matter. Marriage is the only place where sex is proper. Now, the Bible is crystal clear on this. It never changes on this. Now, there's a lot of people who are reading the Bible and twisting it to say other things. And we can have that discussion another time. I'm not going to prove that this is what the Bible says today. I'm just claiming it. It is the consistent witness of the church throughout time. Now, one representative example. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to look there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. It's way to the right, near the maps. For this is the will of God. Now that's strong language. Here's God's will. Your sanctification... And then he breaks it open, what he means by your sanctification. And he's talking in terms of what it means to be sanctified. What is God's will for sex? That you abstain from sexual immorality. That word in Greek is porneia. It means all sex outside of marriage. Now there is a huge amount of discussion around this word among people who read and study the Bible. And there is a group of people who are trying to argue that that's not an all-inclusive word. That it's not talking about everything outside of marriage. They're wrong. They might be good. They might be kind. They might be smart. They're just wrong. And again, I'm not going to go into why they're wrong and we're not going to do a big word study. I would love to do that. If that's your question, please email me. Please call me. I know that I'm making some massive claims here. And I'm not going to, I'm going to go on past that and just stake, put a stake in the ground. That word means all sex outside of marriage. Not as a way of treating you lightly if you disagree, but I've just got another agenda in this sermon. And since I'm the one preaching, I get to pick my agenda. So... (laughs) So if you want to talk to it, talk about it, please come and talk to me, okay? Now, safe sex is not the standard the Bible applies. Certainly sex should be safe. 
And certainly consent is essential. But according to the Bible, safe sex, consensual sex, does not make right sex. Consent does not make it right. Safety doesn't make it right. The only sexual activity that glorifies God is sexual activity within the framework of marriage. Period. No exceptions. This Christian view of sex can be summed up in a single word. Chastity. A word that we must recover in our culture today. Chastity. To be chaste means to keep sex in its proper place. It's God-given place. Now all Christians are called to chastity. For married folks, chastity means you forsake all others. And you are sexually exclusive to your spouse. For the rest of us, for those who are not single, chastity means you forsake sex. Period. In all forms. That's chastity. It's different than celibacy. Celibacy is the idea of a lifelong commitment to no sex. Chastity is sex in its place. In marriage, sexual exclusive behavior with your spouse. Outside of marriage, you forsake sex. In marriage, you forsake sex with anybody else. Outside of marriage, you forsake sex. Now our culture has prepared us to see the logic behind safety and consent and love and self-expression. But what is the connection between marriage and sex? I suspect that for many in this room, you can see the connection between safety and sex and consent and sex and love and sex. And it feels on a deep intuitive level rational to you. But when I said marriage, I suspect that for many in this room, it felt like I brought in this weird, foreign, unrelated institution. And that I've just brought up this like out of left field thing. Why is it wrong to have sex outside of marriage? Why isn't love enough? Now, I grew up, my my granddad's a pastor, my dad's a pastor, my brother, my uncle, my brother-in-law. I grew up in a very Christian family. So when I grew up, sex outside of marriage was wrong. You know why? Because God said so. And that was enough for me. Because I believe Jesus was always the smartest person in the room. I never thought anything else. And if he said it, I believed it and that settled it. Now there are people who make fun of that belief, but that's still the way I am, by the way. I still believe Jesus is always the smartest person in the room. And if he and I disagree, I'm wrong. And if I can't see why he's right, it's because I'm dumb. And if I don't like what he says, it's because I'm wicked. This is my fundamental view. Now, there's a lot of people who make fun of that, but that is a great way to go through life. And it's funny to me, the people who make fun of that, they also treat their children as if that should be true. When they're two, don't walk out into the road or crawl out into the road. You don't have to understand. You don't have to believe it. Just do it because I'm your dad and I said so. Now, I believe there's a far greater gap between God's intelligence and mine than between mine and my two-year-old. That's my fundamental view of life. But that doesn't work anymore. I mean, it doesn't work with a lot of us because I know there are a lot of us who don't have that basic presupposition. So I think that those of us who grew up that way have got to answer the question, why is sex outside of marriage wrong in a different way? Not for ourselves' sake, but for the sake of people for whom it is illogical. And that's not a presupposition that God is always right. 
Why is sex outside of marriage wrong? Why is sex only moral in the bounds of marriage? Well, the Christian view, the Bible actually gives us more than because I said so. The Bible tells us that the Christian view of sex actually is located in the nature of sex, the purpose of sex, and how sex works. See, the biblical restriction of sex to marriage is not an arbitrary rule, as if God just wanted to test us, or as if he doesn't want us to enjoy ourselves too much. You know, we started the service looking at this passage of Scripture. Last week, my whole sermon was all these embarrassing passages of Scripture that are just incredible in their celebration of the pleasures of erotic love. That's clearly, you have lost biblical, you've lost your integrity if you accuse the Bible of not believing in pleasure. You're, you're talking about a caricature there. You're not talking about Scripture. We went through that last week. God created sex. And because he created it, he understands its nature. And he understands its power. And he understands what it's for. And it is this. The purpose and the function of sex that makes sex only moral in marriage. And only immoral outside of marriage. So let's look at the purpose and function of sex. And to do that, I'm going to read three passages of scripture. If you've got your Bible, Romans chapter 1, I mean Genesis chapter 1, this passage that David read to us. Romans 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is a purpose behind gender. Gender differentiation is in the root text of creation. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Now look, that's just fancy Bible language for get together and play Monopoly. In the euphemistic sense. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, just one page over. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, another euphemism for sex. This certainly means more than sex, but it means no less than sex. When two people, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and one, not ashamed, and they are holding one another tightly, and they are one flesh, that is a graphic depiction of sex. Now, a page to the right, again, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve... Now that word no, this part of the Bible is originally written in Hebrew. There's a number of different words no. This word no means no. Like buck naked and lights are on. No. This word no means deep, intimate, total, physical, psychological, social, sexual knowledge. 
Because look what comes out of this knowledge. She conceived, okay? Now the reason the Bible is using all these different ways to describe sex is because sex is, is it's, it's broad. There's, it's robust. There's a lot going on with sex. It's not just two bodies bumping up against each other. There is a lot of things going on. One more passage. Genesis chapter, I mean Ephesians chapter 5. All the way to the right. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is talking about husbands and wives. And he goes back and he quotes this passage about man and a wife, um, hold fast, become one flesh. Look what he says in verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, again... I've got to just make some claims, okay? There are three purposes to sex. And they come up in these four passages. Number one, it unites people. In a, in a very total way. Not just physical. Totally unites people. Number two, it leads to children. We've forgotten that because technology has allowed us to sever the cord between sex and babies. Our technological advances has, have, have caused us to believe that we are totally in control of when children arrive. And we can experience a sex life totally disconnected from making babies. Now you need to know that forever... Until some technological advances in the 60s, that was not the case. Even to those who could practice natural family rhythms well. You know the old joke? People who practice natural family planning, you know what you call them? Parents, right? <laughs> the third purpose of sex in the Bible is that it recalls and reenacts the promise that God makes to us. That he faithfully, totally, permanently irreversibly loves us. There are three purposes to sex in the Bible. It's unitive, it's procreative, and it is sacramental. That's the reason for sex. Now the Bible is claiming that that is at the essence of the purpose of sex and how it works. Now, we are in some deep waters that I have just got to admit to you, I am out of my league here. Because what we really need is somebody who can far better than I show how those three, if they are ever separated from one another, they distort and break people. I don't, I'm not smart enough to show you the interrelationship of the three in the space of this sermon. It would take me very long time to do it because I haven't gotten yet in my own thinking to the far side of complexity. Alfred North Whitehead, brilliant philosopher, said true genius is on the other side of complexity. Right? Anybody can be complex over here. And anybody can be simple over here. 
That's my own limitation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take just one of these issues and drill down into it that I think we really need to deal with. And it's this issue of unity. Think about the image from Genesis 2. The man and the woman unite so closely that they become one. Not just biologically one, but one. In sex, I give myself the whole of my being to my wife. Now, at the heart of the biblical view of sex is that this act of sex is, whether you recognize it or not, a total giving of the self. And when partners do not intend to give themselves entirely, sex is a lie. When there is not a permanent, lifelong, total commitment, our body is lying. Now, there's a movie that I don't recommend for a lot of people, Vanilla Sky. And in it, the lead characters had this sexual affair with with this woman. And he totally breaks it off. And she confronts him and she says, don't you know when two people have sex, their body makes a promise? That's the fundamental biblical view. Now, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the monstrosity of sex... The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual union, from all the other kinds of union which are naturally belonging to sex. The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong with sexual pleasure anything, any more than it means there's anything wrong with eating. He says... Lewis, it means that you must not isolate sexual pleasure and try to get sexual pleasure all by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out. It's it's so funny when I read this. Janelle and I have this friend. He's a professional baseball pitcher. He's super fit. I mean, just imagine me, but a little bit taller. And um, um, super lean, super fit. Brilliant athlete, all that stuff. You know how he enjoys uh, sweets and candy? He chews them and then spits them out. So that he can get some without all of the calories. And when he told me that, I remember doing just what Alec did just now. Like, that is so unnatural. Like, that's, that's freakish. That's sex outside of marriage. One of the reasons that sex is not moral... One of the reasons that sex is moral only inside of a marriage is that marriage provides the context for us to have sex with the confidence of knowing that the other person knows me. Will not, he will not use aspects of me or she to hurt me. I mean, look, we are never more vulnerable than, we are, than when we are naked and making the clumsy gestures necessary to making love. And when two people stand up and say, till only death parts us, that's safety. Sex before marriage suggests that sexual activity precedes this kind of commitment to someone to share your whole life to the end of your days. The thing that makes sex moral is public vows of marriage. Now every culture does that differently. It's not the piece of paper in the courthouse. 
Every, I mean, Genesis 1, that was a cultural approach to marriage. You read through the Bible, and the, in, one, in one moment in biblical history, the way people made vows is they stood up in front of a group, and then they walked into a tent. They made love, and when they came out, they were married. Every culture has different rules for how marriage works, but this is what makes a marriage in God's eyes. Public vows according to culturally accepted norms of lifelong commitment. That makes you married. Doesn't matter if it's in a church or elsewhere. The way that culture institutionalizes lifelong monogamous commitment. Sexual intercourse is a sign of a total unconditional gift of yourself to the other person. So for the gift to be authentic and not to lie, it must be in the context of these vows. One theologian I says, Reed says, the surest sign that, that a married couple doesn't understand sex is when they don't combine their bank accounts. That strikes right at the heart of American idolatry on, on every level. In your sex, in sex, your body is saying, not only do I care for you, I also want to take care of you. Not only is your body saying, I respond sensitively and physically to you, but I also want to be responsible for you unconditionally. The nature of sex is that it is a total gift of the self. And when partners do not intend to give themselves entirely, sex is a lie. Yeah, sex outside of marriage is filled with risk, disease, and pregnancy. Yeah, it can hurt your relationship and any future marriage you might have. But that is not the fundamental issue in the Bible. The nature of sex means that sex is only moral inside of a total and permanent life union. Now, obviously, many people have sex Married and unmarried without having any thought about this kind of deep philosophical stuff. There are many times in marriage where you're not sitting there and pondering the gravity of the situation. You're just enjoying joie de vivre, you know, life and its goodness. Sometimes sex in marriage is like fast food, you know, and sometimes it's like a gourmet meal. Sex plays a lot of, lot of different roles in marriage. You can do anything with sex. You can sell it. You can give it away. You can loan it for the evening. People have sex all the time without any trace of awareness of what they are really doing. But that doesn't change anything. I get in my car and start it up without thinking about how an internal combustion engine works. It doesn't change anything if I get in the car having no sense of what's going on. And Rick gets in his car and has a deep and total sense of how that car is functioning. It doesn't change anything. I'm driving down the road faster than Rick anyway. There are people who see no beauty where there is beauty in abundance. And there are grim people who see no humor where the situation is absolutely hilarious. But none of that changes the reality of those two situations. People can have incredible sexual technique. They can be jaded by sexual indulgence. They can be scornful of sexual rules. And they can be dead to what the Bible teaches about sex. But that is neither here nor there. There is something unique about sex. And we know that. We do know that this is a unique thing. 
It goes beyond the orgasm. It is, it, is, it is even deeper than the connection that two people feel. There is something about sex that only in the last analysis can be believed. And here's where I've reached the end of a rational appeal. The biblical claim about sex at the end of the day can only be believed. But don't act like I'm a person of belief and you're a person of reason. Because if you explore any view of sex, you will get there. You will get at some point to a place where you're claiming something in faith. Now, there's a lot that can be said for natural theology and reasonable arguments about how sex works in a society. There's a lot of good on that, but I'm not going there. Right now, I'm saying that what we have just done is we have bumped up against a claim. A claim that the Bible makes about sex. Sex is a precious gift from God. It has a tremendous bonding power. It unites a man and a woman in a bond of mutual intimacy and pleasure. It builds and cements the relationship. It helps repair it when it's damaged and it should be enjoyed and practiced often in marriage if at all possible. But outside of that it's not only immoral, it is wicked. This is why we heard from Romans chapter 12. Oh, let me, let me, you haven't heard it. Did you hear this? Yeah, you did. This is why we heard Doris read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that, you, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All of these words, what is good, what pleases God, all of this goes together. And, and, and to... Have a sex life God's way. To be chaste in this culture requires sacrifice. For married partners to be faithful in their thoughts and their actions and in their words. For non-married people to forsake sex in every expression. It is simple to state, but it requires sacrifice to practice. Look, we, you know that we live in a society in which there is an avalanche of pressure. We need to lift up the singles among us as heroes when they are chased. We need to recognize that they are dealing with thoughts and images and ideas that are so difficult. And singles, the difficulty of it 
doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to its rightness or wrongness. The difficulty of calculus doesn't impact if it's right or wrong. Now, there's going to be more sermons in the future where I talk about some practical ways that we can actually become a community of chastity. How can we become a community that nurtures couples in chastity? That nurtures marriages in fidelity and singles and and abstinence? Look at Matthew chapter 11, this passage I read a little bit earlier. Here is Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when the Bible is preached, Christ himself walks through the congregation, holds its arms out, and pulls us into himself. I want you to think for a minute that it is the living Christ who is saying these particular words to you. Don't look at these words as a fish on a lab table to dissect. Hear them as an invitation. Come unto me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So you're not married, and you are laboring in a sexual carnival. Come to Christ. Come to Him. You're married, and you're laboring to be faithful. Come to Christ. You've made massive mistakes that you are overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Come to Christ. You're looking at a future that scares you. Come to Christ. And look what he says. I will give you rest. He will. He will. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. You know what a yoke is? It's this thing you put over to animals so they plow in the same direction, in the direction that the farmer wants them to plow in. Yes, coming to Jesus is not about freedom, if you mean by freedom anything you want to do. Coming to Jesus is taking his yoke. It is going in the direction he wants you to go. And it requires learning. And for a lot of us, it requires a tremendous amount of unlearning. Unlearning a lot of ideas we've had. Unlearning a lot of habitual responses we've got. Come unto me and learn. It's a progressive. It won't happen immediately. Getting saved does not make you a mature Christian. You're you're stepping onto the road of a very long path of learning. But Jesus will learn you. (laughs) He'll teach you. And look what he says, my yoke, it is a yoke. He doesn't make any bones about it. If you read the Gospels, he's not shy about the fact that he's got demands. My yoke, though, is gentle, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't mean it's easy to do. He's directly challenging a culture that says it is impossible to be chaste. He is saying, no, it is possible. And there are heroes among us. And those are the testimonies we need to hear. 
There are people among us who are chaste. There are singles who abstain. There are married people who are faithful. Wherever you are on the spectrum, come to Jesus. Come to him. And let him teach you that if you would play the game by his rules, you will discover it is a gift. It is what you were made for. Let's pray.